Hello, and welcome to the Campaign Podcast, powered by something else. I'm Claire Beale. I'm the Global Editor-in-Chief of Campaign. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about the future of work, what the culture and logistics of our professional lives are going to look like in a few years' time, and what we need to be thinking about now as employers and employees to prepare ourselves for this radical transformation in what it actually means to go to work. Helping me to explore these themes, I have two guests with me. First, Sue Todd. Sue spent seven years running her own culture consultancy, Wonder, and she now heads up Magnetic, the magazine industry's marketing body. Hello, Sue. Hello, hello. And our second guest is Bruce Daisley. Bruce helps to run Twitter's European business, but he's a man who's also spent a lot of time this year exploring work cultures and the way that our jobs are changing. Bruce, you even have your own podcast on this subject don't you? Should we have a little bit of a podcast loving moment? Just tell us briefly about it. I've got a podcast called Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, where for sort of most of this year I've I've spent time trying to demystify some of the ideas about work culture and and specifically talking to experts on it. I think there's a lot of self-professed gurus for work culture, but my aim really has been to try and understand the science of it and understand what can make us happier at work. Yeah, it's very much a subject of the moment. Um, The latest campaign uh, monthly magazine issue was all on the future of work, which is one of the reasons why um, we've chosen it as our theme today. So to kick us off, um, I've asked Bruce and Sue to bring in an object that represents to them the future of work. Bruce, let's begin with you because you've got a very strange looking grey thing on the desk in front of you. Tell us. Okay, so so if if you imagine sort of a reasonably sized sack, and by that I mean you could probably secrete a cat in it. You you insert your head into this hole and then almost where the ears might be, these two additional holes there, you put your hands in there and this is called an ostrich pillow. So it's like a sort of head sleeping bag. It's Directly aimed for people sleeping at work. So if you need to catch sort of a bit of a mid-afternoon snooze, it's designed for that. More than anything, I've brought it in because I thought, you know, thinking about how we can incorporate rest, probably not like that, if I'm honest with you, but rest and balance into our lives. Where on earth did you find that? It's good, isn't it? Sue, what have you bought? I brought a mirror that for me represents self-determination and autonomy. I think by 2020, YouGov reckon there'll be 50% of the workforce in the UK self-employed or freelance, 15 20% at the moment. So autonomy and self-determination are going to be how we're all going to feel. We're definitely going to have more kind of say in how we do things. And I think even if you're still employed and in what we classically call a corporate environment at the moment, I just think there'll be an enormous change in terms of how much we kind of have to decide for ourselves what good work and how we work looks like. That sort of ties in with what I've brought with me. Me. I've actually bought a book. It's called My Naughty Little Sister. Um, and it was written by Dorothy Edwards and illustrated by the brilliant Shirley Hughes. Now, my daughter, who's 11, was off school sick last week. And for the first time in years, she said to me, Mom, will you read me a story? And uh, I went up to the attic and I got this book. Because she's my second child, I had never really read to her bedtime stories as much as I had my first child and looking back and it was a real moment last week how much of her early years I spent um, not getting home for bedtime not being there and I had this lovely moment last week but it was also bitter moment as well Um, so mine's hopeful for for parents that come after me 
that they do get more time to read books like this to their children in the evenings. But I wonder why we're all confident and, and hopeful, because I can sort of perceive that there's going to be a twin-track world, that there's a lot of enlightened workplaces and then a lot of workplaces where you're not going to get home and, and the demands on you are, are going to get higher and higher. There's a lot here to discuss, but our work lives have already been transformed dramatically by technology, and it is the technology that's increasingly allowing us to work flexibly remotely but it's also the technology that's meaning it's harder than ever to step away from work so I just wanted to kick off by asking you both whether is one of the biggest problems with the way we're working at the moment is it email is it this always-on culture that technology has fostered Sue what do you what do you think I think it's less email although it's one symptom and more interruptions so I think it's the collection of email is disruptive open plan offices can be disruptive other um, social and technological tools can be disruptive. So I just think it's harder to um, carve out your time into focused time and time where you do interact that's OK to be you know, more interruptive. Carving up your time and, and really being very clear about what is uninterrupted and interrupted time, I think is you know, one of the things people need to change and organise around work. And that dictates also place which I think is the whole debate about offices, homeworking, being in different spaces, permission to work elsewhere other than the office. Yeah. So just just on a personal level, when you work from home, do you have a space that you say, like, this is my working space? So when you go there, you're in a different frame of mind or do you work from bed, from the kitchen table? <laughs> do, do they WFB. blend? I don't want to conjure up any dodgy <laughs> images for your uh, listeners, but um, I don't actually. I think it's just more about um, not being interrupted. So I work in all different places in my house. And I also work in private members clubs, I work out of my stakeholders' offices, I work on the train, I think when I'm out exercising and I come into an office as well. So, Bruce, I know that the sort of advice is um, when it comes to email, just check your emails once or twice a day at a set time and then step away from your inbox. I can't do that and I often wonder whether it's just there's something about my personality because I'm a sort of a bit of a news hound that I always need to know what's going on and what people are uh, trying to communicate to me. Is that a discipline you've managed to achieve? I, I think you're completely right. When I started my career sort of ages and ages ago, there was like these time management courses and someone who's a professional trainer who didn't have any exposure to the real world of work would tell you, oh, yeah, it's all about this list for this. And it felt so disconnected with the reality of your job, but you had some self-hatred that you couldn't change to adapt to that. I don't think that's remotely practical. I think the truth is now email is used. It's like a motorway with one lane on it. It's used for the desperately urgent, the sort of the mundanely trivial it's used for everything and so consequently if you're not checking email on a fairly regular basis you're probably not doing your job properly so then i think our focus and our target has to be okay so how can we make work more satisfying and can we get 90 minute pauses from it i just read something um, in management today the average uh, british worker spends 16 hours a week in meetings I mean, this is like a hostage situation. If people are dragging you into a conference room and you've got to look, you've got to feign attentiveness for two working days a week, it's no wonder that everyone has sort of got this constant hurry sickness. This, everyone's got this sort of constant anxiety. They've got 130 emails to deal with when they come out of those meetings. Work is less fun than it used to be. God, that's depressing. Just on that meetings culture, have either of you got tips on how to deal with that do you do stand-up meetings do you do walking meetings what 
No, I don't have a one-size-fits-all for meetings. I mean, I think I try to keep them to the minimum, but I don't base them on my need because they're not all my meetings. So I think you have to be careful that you don't go, I can do this one in 30 minutes and someone else has got something they want to talk about. I mean, I think you have to move away from everything has to be an hour. I think everybody's accepted that everything doesn't have to be an hour long. I do walk and talk with meetings occasionally, but most of them are pretty classically in a space, sat down with someone for as short a period as we can possibly manage. Here's the critical thing here, is that um, the figures that came out in October, UK productivity, the increase over the last 10 years is the lowest increase in productivity for two centuries. So British growth is slower than ever before, and it's largely because the approach we're taking to the way that the office has changed, with mobile phones, with computers, we just add more stuff to it. So we add more meetings, we add more emails, we give you a device to check those emails when you're out and about. End result is productivity has an increase. And I think probably the big differentiating thing over the next few years will be the organisations that make a change against that. So I chatted to Cal Newport, who's written a, a really fascinating book called Deep Work. And his point, he's a computer scientist, he's an author. You get stuff done, not with the easy stuff, which for that read emails and meetings, but with the hard stuff where you're sitting down, in your case, Claire, where you're writing something mm. or where you're thinking about the consequence of eight people that you've chatted to. That's deep work and you're creating something of substance you're not creating anything of substance when you're replying to 28 emails and his point is that unless you optimize your working environments for deep work then actually you're going to be one of the organizations that lags behind when it comes to productivity so what what might that be on a practical basis so he says a lot of ceos a lot of sort of leaders are doing a monk morning now where they don't have meetings or answer emails till 11 find you know, Thursday, Tuesday mornings, you don't do any meetings before 11 and 12. Or you just find a way to accommodate it into your weekly routine. I love that phrase, a monk morning. Yes. Yeah. feels very peaceful. But let's be honest, we work, in our industry, we work in a, a service culture. And as much as we might talk about working flexibly, the dynamics of our business models demand that, that there's a client... Um, who's asking for a service and you need to be there to deliver it when the client wants it, not when um, it suits you particularly. How do we deal with that? I try to think about how many occasions there are with everybody I know and the people I talk to where somebody has a very urgent service need that means you have to switch out quite quickly from what you're doing. Occasionally it happens, but most of the time, most of the people you're servicing you know, kind of have their own rhythm. So there's a certain element of me that thinks, I think you could probably protect, if you adopted something like Bruce is talking about, like the monk morning, I reckon you could protect 60 or 70% of that. I think it's a bit of a myth that we kind of... And we've created it by talking a lot about agility and responsiveness and being more of a kind of service culture generally in lots of industries. And I'm just not sure the customer or the consumer needs us to jump up quite as fast as we sometimes think they do. Boston Consulting Group did some work on it. They firstly asked their team members to have a night a week off answering emails and doing work. And uh, they found that the people who went through that process were so happy and so satisfied and so content by having one night a week off work, they asked permission if they could continue afterwards. Right, there's the interesting thing. The second one is they felt that they had this urgent demand of clients. They felt like people are paying Boston Consulting Group a lot of money. We need to be on tap all the time. So they communicated to their clients, oh, on this day, Amit 
won't be available on Thursdays. You can't contact him on, on, e- on email on Thursdays. And what they found was that when they said that, clients understood it completely. Oh, Thursday's the day I can't email him. Thursday's the day I chat to other people. And so Rory Sutherland gave me an example. He, Rory said he had a, a client meeting somewhere and he, he was flying to this client meeting. And it was only when he landed at his destination he finally got on Wi-Fi, checked, and he saw that the meeting had cancelled. And he phoned the office. He said, what happened? And they said, we emailed you. And he said, but that's a phone call. We've already got a device that gives the urgent communication that could have prevented me flying for six hours to get somewhere. It's a phone call. And I think that's one of the things. We're not even using the tools available. Everything's just going. It's like one of those sort of garbage disposal units. And you think just you start pushing everything down here. Surprise, surprise, not everything should go down there. So I think we need to probably think a bit more effectively about the tools we've already got. You two wrote an article for a campaign recently where you talked about um, a survey that found that the number of people who say they feel lonely at work has, has risen by 30% since the millennium, which is desperately bleak. Um, is the office becoming this sort of sad and lonely place because more of us are seeking um, ways to not be in the office? I mean, I think it's partly to do with exactly what we talked about a few minutes ago, which is if you can't get the right type of work that you need to do and the place or environment you're in is not conducive to that, then I think you start trying to find ways to exclude yourself, either remove yourself, work somewhere else, stick your headphones on, which A, gives the signal that you're you're not to be interrupted and you've got your head down. And then all of a sudden, in the environment where probably you should be making the most of seeing your team, interacting you know, throwing things around, having a team meeting, etc. You're suddenly doing the work that does, isn't conducive to that environment. So I, I think it's about being having the wrong work in the wrong environment, part of it. There was a great piece by Ian Tate last year, and he was talking about it, so they'd reduced their working hours with the view that people would come and do their discursive parts of their jobs in the office and then maybe sort of handle some of the administrative parts out of the office. I think things like that are really progressive. Do we need to rewind on some of the the sort of modern trends of um, office design? I'm not espousing putting walls everywhere, but I think probably you could cultivate more of a tribal vibe of teams if you had groups of 20, 30 people working in units um, with fewer disruptions and and interruptions. Yeah, I mean, I think the best offices do do that really well. I think they really think hard about open plan and a number of pods where people can break away either on their own or with their team. Totally agree with you. The loneliness figures are astonishing. And I think it is people feeling dislocated a little bit from their teams and the people that ultimately they usually quite like working with. But when I started work, we all had our own desks and you sort of, and mine was always desperately untidy, but it was, it was no. sort of my nest. Um, and so I felt very, you know, this was my space. I felt very comfortable when I was there. I, I don't have that anymore. I've got a locker and, you know, a fight for who's, who's going to have the broken chair in the morning. Where do you two sit on the hot desking versus proper named desking? I think, look, you know, starting with the objective in mind, I think trying to allow people to build some affinity with teams and, and, and build some sort of often just humorous rapport. You know, the joy of work mm. is laughing with the people you work with. I was reading something the other day that was saying that we actually laugh an incredible amount in, in social environments. Someone analysed the incidences of laughter between people. And normally, if you just read the transcript of what they're laughing about, it's, it's, there's no joke there. People just choose to just laugh, to build affinity, to build connection. Yeah. But it's through those things that we then build a, a team bond, and that's when you can 
truly find the love of working with people. And so for me, anything that fully divorces us from that, where you don't stumble into a colleague for three days a week because you don't know where they're sitting, I think you're losing some of the affinity that we love forming with the people we work closely with. But let's be honest, we do work in a, a pretty privileged bubble, really, um, in the media industry where all of these issues around flexible working, part-time working, you know, the do you have your own desk or not, they're... They're quite privileged problems to have and the economic realities for an awful lot of people is that they're having to work as many hours as possible in um, environments that are not conducive to creativity or uh, sort of the best mental health. They're doing it because they've got mortgages to pay, rent to pay, families to feed. There are many people that would listen to this conversation and, and think we're up our own backsides. I think in the creative industries, though, given what we all know about the growth that's happening from the sector in its broadest sense and how important it is to UK PLC. I don't know the stats, but I would imagine the vast majority are not what we'd call knowledge workers. So I think in in the widest possible sense of the industry that we're in, I think this stuff's really relevant because I think all the data about stress and anxiety and exhaustion at work you know, really affects creativity and ideas. And, you know, that's kind of the absolute centre of what we collectively all do. I mean, you know, it's difficult to talk about what the issues are going to be if you're in a much more blue-collar environment, but I think even there, you know, workplaces are changing. I mean, I think people are starting to think about how they are efficient but also effective with their talent and their human capital. So, I mean, I know much less about those sectors, but I get a sense that everyone's thinking about how work tech's going to change those environments too. I was chatting to someone from the insurance sector the other day and she said, oh, the whole sector's been shaken up. Uh, one of the companies in the insurance sector changed the way they worked, made it a more sort of relaxed working environment, biased to creativity. And it's been so disruptive to the sector that everyone else is sort of shaken by it and, and wondering how they can adapt. Now, I just want to look forward to, to when the next generation of workers come in, into the workplace. According to uh, a recent report called um, the Millennial Economy Report, just 36% of Generation Z respondents say that the opportunity for growth is their number one priority. They don't see their career as being a place where they expect to go and have sort of a mind-expanding time. They're much more interested in looking for a stable job lacking in passion. Do you think actually we're in this blip and that um, what we expect from work is going to go back to um, a more routine less creative demands from our workspace? I think actually the challenges for a lot of people are going to be that work is just more demanding than it's ever been before. We're working two hours a day more since we got emails on our mobile phones. And so it's just it's putting these demands upon us. I think anyone entering the workforce now might be oblivious to the fact that there were times when, not to romanticise the past, but there were times when work felt joyful, creative, like there was room to sort of come up with ideas, to laugh, to relax. And, you know, they felt like there's more balance and equilibrium in a week than there is now. But I tend to think if you remove the generational question, we need to find a way to make work more rewarding, less demanding for everyone in the workforce, I think. What's not a blip, though, is the fact that everyone's got to work longer, for sure. So there's, you know, the kind of... I read something by a historian who said, we will look back at the 20th century and say there was about 70 years where people retired in their 50s and 60s and got a pot of money and then spent 
you know, somewhere between five and ten years spending that money before they, you know, died in their early 70s. And we know that's not going to happen. They'll say that was a unique period in history. Before it never happened and after it won't happen. So I think people's attitude to what they need to get out of work is a little bit more long-sighted. You need something to do that keeps you cognitively alert and keeps you kind of interested. And, um, you know, golf's not going to do it for me. I've often struggled with this idea of work-life balance because if you enjoy your work, it is your life. Do we need to just move away from this idea of work-life balance? I think so. I mean, a balanced life is about more than just work and life, isn't it? It's about everything that you find nourishing, enjoyable, rewarding and kind of need to do to sustain the life you want. So, I mean, I think it's a kind of bigger piece of the work-life balance. And I I think for ages people have been saying that that's no longer useful, it's too binary. Employers have a responsibility to have these bigger conversations about what people want that matches what the organisation is trying to do for a longer period. It doesn't mean they'll stay for 50 years, but I think whilst they're engaged with your workforce, I think you really need to understand it. Um, Now, you two, I know you've worked together to come up with a a charter to address some of these issues. It's called the New Work Manifesto. So I wondered if you could tell me a bit about that and what you hope to do with that manifesto. I think it's just some ideas and principles to open the discussion and to give people a sense of the things that we've come across that we think if they could adopt them might make disproportionate difference to the outcomes that we're all talking about, you know, reduced stress, higher productivity, happier at work. The list feels immensely sort of very achievable. It's almost trivial. Some of the best things that anyone can do is take a lunch break. It might seem like really pedestrian, but in fact it correlates so strongly with people feeling less exhausted at work, people being more creative, people getting more done in their afternoon. And so, you know, even though it's, it's incredibly easy for anyone to do, it actually can have far more impact than anything else. The number one way that anyone can be happier full stop in their life is get more sleep. The, the number one hack that anyone can do to reduce their stress at work is take the badge off their email, telling them how many emails they've got left. In the research of the people who had that done, they were still having a beneficial impact in their stress levels two years later. But they're so related, those things, to your actual brain, which is what things people have suddenly really started to understand. They do sound pedestrian, but the science says, the neuroscientists, the cognitive psychologists, the evolutionary biologists, all these experts who spend their lives researching these things in lab rats and humans, say these reduce the chemical releases of cortisol and, you know, all the stress hormones in your brains. And it does make a massive difference. I mean, I've switched off the notifications on all of my uh, social media and email and it's made a massive difference to how I feel. I've just checked my uh, my email app. I'm, I feel sick as I read this out. 95,757 unread emails. Right. <sighs> <laughs> Yeah, the cortisol's starting to go, you see. (laughs) Um, So just just before we wrap up, I want you both to give me one, possibly two points that you would give to an employer to make their company a positive place to work. The number one thing we put on the New Work Manifesto was presume permission. And that goes to what Sue's been talking about, about autonomy, is that quite often people are sitting at their desk and they don't know if they're allowed to go and sit in a room and, and write a presentation. Am I allowed to go home and work on that thing? That I... And so as a result, they ask their boss and their boss is 
distracted and so just says no, immediately they've created this claustrophobic environment where no one's happy, no one's getting anything done. And I think, you know, the number one thing that any employer can do and, and any of us can do is just presume you've got a, a permission to adapt your working week. So if you're the CEO, how do you, should you tell your staff that they should presume that? I think so, yeah. I, th- I think, you know, just leading from the top, if the CEO emails at weekends, that sends a tone across the whole company. And the tone across the whole company is, you better check your emails all weekend. Forevermore, hundreds of people are checking their emails on Saturday afternoon. It's like he's it, it, created a bathtub of cortisol to, to sort of <laughs> stress out the whole organisation. And so, like, getting that tonality, getting that right. In fact, if you chat to the, those bosses, they normally say, oh, I was just... I was just clearing something, yeah. you know. So that, that's a cultural change that our employers can make now. And Sue, what, what would you advise? So I think my advice is to talk about this stuff more. I mean, there's been loads of surveys done. I think there's one by Deloitte's last year, like a global leadership survey, that said something like 82% of global leaders believe culture can be a competitive advantage, but that only 19% believe they had the right culture to enable that. So there's this massive gap. So I'd imagine it's just not... We'll talk about it more, just, you know, more openly and start the conversations. One massive area that we haven't touched on, um, and I'm going to leave it to another podcast, is diversity. So I wouldn't want anyone to think we were completely ignoring that issue because I think it's vital to securing the future health of the business. But that's, it's such an important issue. We will leave that to another podcast. Thank you both so much. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you, Sue. Thank you. Um, you've been listening to the campaign podcast powered by something else thank you so much to our wonderful producer Miranda Hinckley please join us uh, for the campaign podcast next month when we will be talking about Christmas advertising and we'll see you next time Mm -hmm.